0: Hey, I, I need to tell you also what we're where we are and what we're doing and why we're doing it, so that uh, so that you don't lose track. I mean, it is uh, the end of February, and and I've been gone a while, and so let me just tell you what what we're up to. Um, it all was spawned by that trip to Israel that took place back in October. I, I told you then that there were some very upsetting things that came to, or that we, that you confront in Israel. Uh, one of them is the excesses of Roman Catholicism, and the other is the, the just the downright meanness and wickedness of um, Islam. And so I came back and said, you know, I'm going to just do some weeks on um, on both of those. Those were the two things that were the most stunning in terms of their offense to the gospel. And so what we've done is we've spent about four or five weeks already on Roman Catholicism. It, this is not this is not designed to be a cheap shot at Roman Catholicism. It's it's not. I didn't go out of my way to, to, uh, um, I want to raise through Roman Catholicism and I can combat it. That's not what it was. It was, we. you see things, you see upsetting things in Israel, you see parents, um, rubbing their, their children's faces on rocks and, and, you know, bowing down and kissing things and, and, and incense and, and, and just, just some bizarre stuff that, that kind of makes you wonder, um, you know, who, who's who got the who's got the right deal here? You know, I, I mentioned to you the Treasury of Merit. I've mentioned it to you a couple of times and that the that the pope has the right to to reach into the Treasury of Merit and 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 give merit to people who are deficient like all of us. And and I thought, you know, um, is that right? I mean, if they got it right, is that where I need to go get some merit is from that Treasury? Or or is there something else that the Christian gospel offers? And so that's why we're doing this. I don't want you to lose sight of that. Um, I, I'm not trying to be antagonistic to anyone. I'm trying to analyze. And, and very frankly, um, I've I've read you this quote before. You and I who believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone are under the anathema of the Roman Catholic Church presently. If you believe in a doctrine of justification, I read you that right out of the Council of Trent. I mean, I can go back in my office and get it and read it again if you'd like to see it. But any of us who believe in a doctrine of justification by faith alone, let them be anathema. That is, we're under the curse presently. Uh, you and I, because of our, uh, our belief in that doctrine, are under the curse of the Roman Catholic Church. We are anathemed. It's, a, um, it's a, a Greek word, by the way. That's a Greek word that's brought into the English, anathema, uh, which, which simply means a divine ban. A, a, we are under the divine ban of the Roman Catholic Church because of our commitment to justification by faith alone. So as a result of going to Israel and, 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 and realizing that, I thought it would be at least profitable. I hope it's profitable for us to examine some things. We spent about three weeks on the whole issue of uh, the doctrine of justification, sola fides, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and then I spent one week on papal infallibility because it seems to me that if there's anything infallible other than the Scriptures, we've got a big, big problem. Uh, I put that in in my organizing my <clears throat> my presentations. I put that in the second slot right after sola fides because if there is something infallible beside the Scripture. Then I, I think we've got a real dangerous situation and something that we, we at least need to examine. And so I told you, I introduced that to you last week, uh, that the, that the proof text that is used by the Roman Catholic Church is Matthew 16, uh, upon this rock I will build my church, that Peter was the first bishop of Rome, uh, that he was given the keys of the kingdom, and, um, as a result that's been, um, uh, that's been passed on in a line of succession. Uh, we, we looked at all that, uh, when was that? <laughs> A month ago, now uh, three weeks ago, I guess, um, and and so tonight, what I want to do is, is kind of wrap up this little segment uh, by by telling you why it is that the um, not simply the reformers, but all of evangelicalism has rejected the whole idea, not only of papal infallibility, but have rejected the whole idea of pope completely. Not just that he's infallible. That's that is spiritually dangerous. But even, forget that. Just the whole idea of a bishop at Rome and, and the primacy of the bishop of Rome and the succession of the bishop of Rome. You know what I mean by succession? That when he dies, he passes it on to the next guy. And he passes it on the next guy. All the way down to, the day, to, to today. That's succession. That whole papal system. Uh, why is it that evangelicalism has stood so steadfastly against it? I'm going to give you seven reasons tonight in, in uh, 20 minutes or so as to why it is that we, um, as evangelicals, as the as the Protestant world. I shouldn't even say evangelicals. I should say Protestants. All Protestants uh, have rejected the whole idea of, uh, of the Pope and certainly of papal infallibility. Okay? Um, I, I, I could spend a lot of time on this first one, and I think I'm going to... Um, um, I'm going to try to list this stuff for you, but some of it's, 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 sometimes it's, um, it's hard to write in a sentence. So let me just, the first thing, ooh, how about that, um, is papal errors. Errors that are documented over the course of the history of the church um, where, the, where the pope has erred and erred grievously. Um, I took, I have a book in my library, I forget the title of the book. Um, and it's written by a guy named Matheson. And um, he's got a whole chapter, and it's page after page after page of papal errors. I just copied one of the pages, just one of the pages. And on this page, there's one, two, three, four, five um, examples historically where the, where the Pope has erred. Not on small things. How about Christology? You know what Christology is? that is the view of Jesus Christ. This guy's name was Pope, Pope Vigilus, um and in this uh, d- d- he was denounced uh, the second by the second council of constantinople in 553 um and then he changed his mind because he was denounced. But there were those of course who uh lived under his uh rule who um uh, adopted his position a position called nestorianism that was denounced later by the Roman Catholic Church itself. But there's a pope who uh, was Nestorian in his view of uh, the person of Christ. Uh, how about the, the heresy of monotheolism? You ever heard of that one? Uh, neither have I. Uh, but that was Pope Honorarius. Uh, he, too, was denounced because of his uh, the instructions in what later became denounced as a heresy. Let me let me give you just a little bit of detail about this guy. This is Pope Boniface the the eighth, um, and he says, and this is a, a quote from something that he wrote. He says, "Indeed, we declare, say, pronounce, and define that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman Pontiff." Now, do you understand what he just said? <laughs> that is, it is necessary. For salvation, for every human creature, do you know any of those? There's a few of them here tonight. There's a couple of subhumans too. But uh, uh, for every human creature to be sub, if you expect to be saved, you must be subject to the Roman Pontiff. That was found in Unum Sanctum, uh, a, a a a a document produced by Pope Boniface the But the interesting thing is. Vatican II um, uh, uh, came back later and denounced that position and taught the very opposite. Um, According to Vatican II documents, Christians, listen to this, Christians of other denominations may be saved. I know you'll be glad to hear that. But um, it goes on to say, non-Christians, specifically Jews and Muslims, May also be saved. It goes on. Pagans may be saved. Even those who do not explicitly know the existence of God may be saved. Does anybody buy that? (laughs) Um, I I mean, it, it gets comical. Tragically so but all i'm simply saying is ladies and gentlemen that one of the first reasons that the 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 protestant world has so rejected the whole idea of of uh, papal infallibility is demonstrable errors that have taken place uh over the history of of the popes the second reason comes from matthew chapter 18 you need to turn there matthew 18:18 18, 18, um because as i told you last week the the um, the text upon which the Pope is based is in Matthew 16. Um, and, and let me read you. I'm just going to read you a little bit of Matthew 16. Um, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay? Now, look at Matthew 18:18, 18, 18, where we find this. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, do you see the similarity in language in those uh, what uh, in eighteen, eighteen, and uh, uh, sixteen, nineteen? The difference in the two passages, ladies and gentlemen, is that Jesus is indeed addressing Peter in in, in Matthew sixteen, but in Matthew eighteen, he is addressing the entire church. In fact. It, that, that statement is found within the context in a paragraph concerning church discipline. Saying to the church, whatever you bind, whatever you loose, yada, yada, yada. That is, this, this authority that the Roman Catholic Church says that lies within the hands of the Pope in terms of his possessing the keys of the kingdom is also, in this text, given to the church as a whole. Not simply to a a, a singular um, personage. Identical power given to the disciples as what is claimed is given to Peter. That's uh, the second reason. Um, Now, thirdly, guys, Protestants do not deny that Peter was the leader of the the apostolic band of twelve. What is passionately disputed is whether or not his role as a leader was transferred to any successor. You understand what I'm saying? Nobody denies that that Peter had a leading role in the apostolic band. What Protestantism says, did did that get passed on to whoever Peter's successor? Let me tell you what that will do to you if you adopt such a position. Um. That would mean, that is, Peter's role got passed on to his successor. Okay? The Apostle John lived some 30 years after the death of Peter. Peter, by tradition, was crucified upside down in Rome. That's just tradition, but that's a pretty healthy tradition that he was crucified upside down, saying that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. that's That's a tradition. That's not a historical fact. That's a tradition but he was he was killed 30 years before the apostle John who wrote the gospel of John and you know that guy before the uh, the apostle John died if you believe in a succession then the second person after Peter died would have been in a position that his that is Peter's successor would have had authority Over John the Apostle, who lived thirty years uh, longer than Peter did, so you've created a situation where the successor is in a position where he outranks John, who was the man, the one, the the disciple that was called, the one that Jesus loved. All right, Um, uh, guys, uh, I I think I'm going to hold on to that. Fourthly, um, guys, go forth. Go to Acts 15. I probably ought to say that to last, but uh, uh, we'll do it. Do you know what Acts 15 is? Acts 15 is called, It's a. it's an event that takes place in the church. It's called the Jerusalem Council. You remember uh, Peter? I mean, Paul had been traveling around, and and he had made all kinds of waves, um, uh, planting churches all over the Gentile world, and so the, the the church was growing at such a rapid rate that a that a meeting was called. By the way, uh, much of Presbyterian government is is based on Acts fifteen, that elders from all other the churches in the area were called into one place to a general assembly, where decisions were made. Alright, that's, that's, uh, the, that, Acts 15 is used in that way, and, but that's what this is. You see it in your text, it's called the Jerusalem Council. But, uh, there, are, there's a dialogue that goes on about what we should tell the Gentiles, and how do we define the gospel, and, and, um, yada, 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 and the church is about, oh, um, mm, let's say 30 years old at this moment. Uh, I, I'm guessing. But the church is about 30 years old at this moment, and so there's this, there's this, Hullabaloo about what, is, what, is, what do we need to tell these missionaries that are going out to plant churches around Asia Minor, what do we need to tell them? How, how is, should they have to submit to the law of Moses? That was the big issue. Big conflab, lots of conversation, and then a decision is made, and the decision is stamped with the approval of the church, and Paul is sent out. Here's the point. In the Jerusalem Council... Who is it that is in charge? It is not Peter. He's there. Peter is there, and Peter speaks. But the one who is in charge of the meeting, the one who's the top dog, is not Peter. It's James. The church is 30 years old, and if there's a recognized leader to her, It ain't Peter. It's James. Now, um, that's four. Five. Um, Guys, the Apostle Paul, (laughs) this gets kind of, I guess, tacky. Or maybe it's funny. I don't know what it is. The Apostle Paul writes 13 letters that are included in the New Testament. Not one time, not one time in any of those 13 letters does Paul ever refer to Peter, except once. Do you know where that was? It's in Galatians 2. Why don't we turn over there and let's just see what Paul has to say To Peter in Galatians 2. By the way, I'm not trying to take Peter's head off, but I'm just trying to tell you that he wasn't a pope. Um, Paul never mentions Peter, ever, except in Galatians 2. And in Galatians 2, he is mentioned because... Look at verse 14, 2-14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step... With the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? Do you see what Paul is doing? He is rebuking Peter in front of everybody because by Peter's lifestyle He was denying the truth of the gospel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Peter, I mean, Paul mentions Peter. He mentions Peter to tell the church how wrong he was. And how upsetting he was to the whole advance of the gospel to Gentiles. The only time, ladies and gentlemen... That Paul ever mentions Peter is to rebuke him. Does he sound infallible to you? By the way, that's not the only time. One of them, of course, is in the very text that is used by the Roman Catholic Church to establish papal uh, succession. Uh, You remember what that story was, don't you? You remember, uh, And who do men say that I am? Well, but who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon and Jonas, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven, he's the one who revealed that to you Peter, the way to go. And on this right, yada, 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 yada. And then Jesus starts talking about the, you know, he's going to have to go to Jerusalem, down the cross. And then Peter says, hey, 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 let's not talk like that anymore. And you remember what Jesus says to him. Get thee behind me. Sound like a pope to you? Does it sound like an infallible pope to you? That one who couldn't even get the gospel right. And one who in that instance, in Matthew 16, is the mouthpiece. The mouthpiece. Of Satan. Um, By the way. Peter does refer to Paul in one of his epistles. And when he does, he alludes to Paul and tells people what wonderful things that he has written and, um, uh, how some of them are too, are very difficult to understand, but encourages the rest of the church to grapple with the great letters of the apostle Paul. But the only time Paul ever mentions Peter, is in Galatians two when he had to confront him because Paul I mean because Peter had uh tucked tail and run in front of the Judaizers who were messing up with the Galatians' minds. Um <clears throat> uh, kind of sixth and seventh and and with this we'll kinda wrap up. Um oh but before I leave this all I'm saying here is that this shows how fallible the man was. I, I'm not saying, I, you know, Peter is a great, was a great leader in the Christian church and a great brother and, and, you know, I preached a series of sermons on Peter and he was wonderful and yada, yada, yada. I'm just trying to tell you he wasn't infallible. And you have two egregious examples of his fallibility, not his infallibility. Um. Peter himself never claimed anything closely resembling um, being a pope. Peter never claimed for himself anything that even looked close or, or, or resembled anything like popedom. Let me show you how he does describe himself. Go with me to one of his letters. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Got to hurry. First Peter chapter five. Here's how he, Here's what he says. Uh, I'm gonna read you the first three verses. First Peter five verses one through three. Peter is writing and he says, "So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed." Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for its shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to look very, just look closely at what he says in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. The word that, that Peter uses, um, there it is, <laughs> um, presbyteros is the Greek word from which we get the word Presbyterian. It's a word that's that's translated elder. It's a very dear word to some of us um presbyterian comes from this word pres the greek word presbyteros means elder but when peter got ready to describe himself he adds a little prefix to the word presbyteros he adds this little pres- prefix sum. it's a word that really means with but it's translated here fellow elder I exhort you as a fellow elder, or as an elder with you guys. Peter never makes any claim about being in a position of primacy. He does just the opposite. In fact, he exhorts the rest of the elders as one who sees himself as simply one of them. Guys, when this um, when this whole issue of uh, papal infallibility first came up, that when it was first suggested, I think, a, I want to say the 8th century, the, the Pope who was then in office called it a pernicious novelty. Now, I'm guessing at the 8th century, but just permit me. From the 8th century to the 21st century, we have gone from a pernicious novelty to an institution that claims for itself that on certain occasions, when speaking ex cathedra, on matters of church-wide concern, and um, uh, on matters of faith and morals, when he speaks like that, he is speaking infallibly. We have gone from a pernicious novelty to where we are today where a pope can speak and when he speaks in these meeting these three qualifications, he speaks infallibly. Now, one quick thing I'm done. I I think I said this three weeks ago. One of the problems with papal infallibility is that there's never been a collection uh, ever brought together as to which pronouncements by the pope were indeed um, infallible statements. So we don't know which ones were and which ones aren't. But we do know of one which was considered to be an infallible pronouncement on the part of the Pope. And it was the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Now, I, I think you've you, you got to understand, when we're talking about Immaculate Conception, we're not talking about Jesus being born of a virgin. Immaculate Conception does not mean that. Immaculate Conception means that Mary was conceived immaculately in the womb of her mother. Now, so Mary is immaculately conceived. That has come as an infallible statement from a Pope. And we have gone from the whole idea of a pernicious novelty to the place where this person can make a pronouncement of that magnitude and the rest of us aren't supposed to ask any questions because the Pope is infallible. Ladies and gentlemen, not only for these reasons do I think it's wrong I think it's incredibly dangerous to the soul of any man, woman, child, boy, or girl that would place themselves under that kind of authority. For these reasons, Protestantism has always rejected not only the infallibility of the Pope, but the Pope himself. Our Father, um, what we want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, So if error has been spoken here tonight, would you correct it in the minds of your people and not allow them to go home possessing error? But if um, what has been taught and described is true, would you give us a great um, sense of calm and peace in knowing that the Pope is not infallible, the church is not infallible, but your word is. And the great source of our, um, our comfort and our delight and our direction and guidance is not from an institution, but it is from this book that we so love. And we bless you for it, and thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.